It's great to be with you guys uh, this morning. Happy New Year again. Um, my name's Jay. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, um, welcome to our family gathering. One of the things that I said last week as we were sharing about um, 2018 and some of the things that we want to see happen and, and um, be faithful with, as John mentioned, is just um, not only identifying kind of the work of the Spirit in our community, but also sharing uh, his work as he works in us. And we have a strong conviction with our church that uh, God is not just uh, active in our community when we are in a building with a steeple on top of it, or uh, active in our community on a Sunday morning, but really the point of our gathering is to equip us to see and walk in the leading in the leadership of the Holy Spirit throughout our week. And so we expect and should see evidence of his activity in and through us. And so um, I became aware of one of those stories, and I was thankful to hear it. So um, first, starting us off um, for 2018, uh, Steph Maines is going to share a little bit about how she experienced God this week. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So hearing God was definitely at work. Starting on Monday, um, and so here's I want to name for this um, whole from November for dinner. And, um, sorry. <laughs> Someone's She kind of, we prayed together, and God is just moving an awesome way for both of us. It kind of aligned our paths, and um, we just seem to work in amazing ways providing for both of our families. And she was basically just letting God speak for her to us. And she looked at me and she said, I feel like God wants me to tell you that you're such a good mom. She just loved me. And I was like, that's so awesome. I just felt so encouraged. And I don't know why, like, those words came to her, but they did. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like I was having that day and felt that way. So um, and then Friday, um, I was in the car and Elise was crying and she wanted to go to Dunkin' Donuts. So... Um, you're on Route 70, you don't get over there, and they have a drive through And I was like, let's go through the drive through And she starts crying, I don't want to go through the drive through So I was like, okay, we'll go outside. I was pouring down rain. And we went inside, and um, this girl who's about my age helped us, and she's really sweet. And she was like, oh, you like orange juice? She's talking to Elise, you like orange juice? I love orange juice. She's like, I drink it every morning. I'm seven weeks pregnant. And I was like, oh, congratulations. She came back around, so she was on her brain, and she was like, Yeah, I just lost my eight year old son. And she was like trying to get back the tears, and she kind of sat down on her phone, and uh, at least I go to the bathroom, and she started crying, the usual. And um, I just felt the spirit of God saying, You need to talk to her, you need to just be there for her. Today, watch and pray. Hmm. And so, 
Um, later that night, I was like, oh, she probably text me, like, kind of weird. Um, she wrote me, and she just said, um, I feel like you're a mom to me. You gave me a great vibe. I just want to cry. I don't have a mom to treat me like a daughter. And then I thought like, back to how Lord said, said, like, you're a great mom. That's the encouragement that I needed to encourage her. And I just wrote her back and I said, um, the vibe that you felt was not me. It was the spirit of God working through me. He wanted me to speak to you for a reason. I'm not a perfect mother, but I have a perfect father who loves me, and he loves me just as me. And she hasn't stopped texting me, texting me, so it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That was awesome. Uh, if you need any more evidence that God works in everyday ways through his people, I don't know what to do for you. <laughs> I've got nothing. <laughs> um, that's amazing. Thanks for sharing that, Steph. Um, what an encouragement, right? That he both gives what he wants to put in you, and he uses that same deposit that he puts in you to work through you to someone who needs it maybe even more than you do. And I hope that you heard like several of the rhythms that we've been talking about as a family just active in that story in just an everyday way. And it's just so in line with, it's not like there's anything outside the norm from our daily rhythms happening there. It's just somebody who is spending time eating with another family member, right? Taking the time to pray and listen to the Spirit. Um, receiving uh, the blessing of God, acting in a way that's blessing, Lord for first Lord us to her and then her to someone else, like reflecting on the fact that the Spirit is moving and then capturing those ways and going, and even being able to express that in a powerful way to say like, yeah, I, like I mess up as a mom, but I have a perfect dad. Like just how beautiful is that? And I'm just convinced that God wants to do that over and over and over and over again through every single one of us this year. And so I hope that you're encouraged, but even more than encouragement, I hope that you're emboldened. Because that's, I mean, if you're encouraged, but you walk out of here and then you close yourself off to the Spirit of God, I think you missed the point of that story. So thank you again for doing that. I was going to talk about forgiveness today. I don't have anything good to share. (laughs) Man! Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for your forgiveness. Um, <laughs> we are, we're doing a series, and we're starting today. Um, our kind of brand new series for 2018, which is called The Gospel And. And um, what we're going to be doing through this series is over the next 12 or 13 weeks or so, I want to I take us through several kind of key topics and ideas, different facets of life. And I want to ask the question of each of these facets of life, what does the gospel have to say about this? Um, because if we're going to be a gospel people, which is even what some, some of what you've heard already this morning, then it means that we are to be people who think and speak into every aspect of life according to that one question. And so if you've never asked that question before, you're missing out. Because the gospel isn't just, this is the way that Tim Keller puts it, which I love. It's, the gospel isn't just the ABCs of faith, it's the A to Zs. It's not just the introduction to what it means to live a life with God. The, the good news of Jesus Christ is to be the lens through which we see all of life. Everything that we encounter, every one that we come across, we are to view that specifically through the lens of who Jesus is and what He's done. And if we're not doing that, here's the reality. You are doing it through some other lens. You are viewing life with a pair of glasses on, whether or not you realize it. And those glasses may be the glasses of your political bent. It may be the, the filter, the glasses of your Americanism, it may be the, the filter of your family and your heritage, it may be your ethnicity, it may be your personal preferences, but you see the world through colored lenses. 
And the, the, the good news of the gospel wants to replace how you see the world with the viewpoint of Jesus Christ and what he's done. Um, we're, we're using a couple verses to help us along in this. The first one is Colossians 3, which says this in verses 1 and 2. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. In other words, love, love the things above more than the things of this world where Christ is, is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And then he says later in verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. So set your minds means think through all of life from not from your earthly perspective, but from your heavenly perspective, because the reality is that's where you're seated if you're in Christ. And oh, by the way, be someone who teaches others how to do the same thing. And so it's not enough for us to say as a church, well, I've got the right pair of glasses on and everybody else doesn't. It's not enough. We can't be proud. We can't be haughty with our viewpoint and go, I've got it right because I see the world through the lens of the gospel, but nobody else does. No, it says, let it dwell among you so richly that you teach others to do the same thing. Because if you're not doing that, you're not mature yet. And I think in 2018, God wants us to take a giant step forward in our maturity as a church. A giant step. Um, Ephesians 4:13 to 15 is the other one because here's what happens when you start to see the, the world through the lens of the gospel. He, Paul says this, then you'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. See, this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, is that we would attain the whole measure of the fullness of Jesus, that we would walk through life with his perspective, with his power, with his grace, with his love, and with his truth. But you can't do that if you don't see the world through the lens of the gospel. You just can't. It's going to be impossible for you. Because if you're not walking through life with that lens, you're going to be taken captive by every other wave and every other wind that comes along your way. And one of the things that I'm just lamenting these days when I think about the church is that I don't see the church of Jesus Christ standing on the fullness of the gospel today. And it breaks my heart. I see the church of Jesus Christ looking through the world through other lenses that aren't from him. I see Christians being more informed by their political party and their racial assumptions and their parents and their peers and their co-workers and their personal preferences than by Jesus Christ and his good news coming into the world. I see people who love their particular causes more than the cause of Christ. I just want to speak prophetically over us for a second, family, and to say this cannot be with our family. It cannot stand. We need to stand on the foundation of Jesus and let the message of Jesus dwell in us richly. And so that's what we're going to do over this time together. Some of it's going to be uncomfortable, and that's okay. Because we love one another and we're committed to each other and we're committed to Jesus and we want to grow in him and mature in him. And so some of that work of building a foundation on Jesus means we're going to need to kick out the other foundations because we can't stand on them anymore because we look just like the world if we're doing that. And so we're going to begin with a topic and I was, I was a little surprised about this, but um, we're going to begin with the topic of forgiveness, which in some ways seems like the, the basics, right? It's like the ABCs rather than the A to Zs. It's the, it's the fundamentals as opposed to the advanced class. Um, but when we did our, our survey for the gospel and online, this was actually tied for number one, that people wanted to learn about forgiveness. And so um, even though it seems foundational, it's probably a fitting place to start because you, if you 
if, if you see the world through the lens in all kinds of other different ways, but you miss out on forgiveness, you're missing out on the heart of the gospel. So in some ways, it's very appropriate for us to, to begin here. Now, let me start by asking this question, and we dialogue often as a family, and so you get to respond to this one. What are some of the ways that our, our culture tends to think about forgiveness? When do you forgive? How do you forgive? What is forgiveness? What, did, what, what are some of those waves and winds that our culture says, this is what forgiveness is, or this is how you should do it? Yeah, you forgive when asked to be forgiven. And you don't do it before then. Someone doesn't say they're sorry, you don't forgive them. Yeah. Yeah, once they've, they've done penance, right? Once they've suffered enough or done enough or, you know, either enough bad has happened to them or they've responded with enough good to redeem themselves, then you forgive. Yeah, there's a list of things from like not so bad things to really bad things and then somewhere in the line of that hierarchical list is a line and you don't go below that line, right? You stay above the line. What are you going to say, Lori? It's for the other person. So yeah, so we, we might forgive the actions and attitudes of other people but we have a hard time forgiving ourselves. Yeah. Right, Yeah. So, so you say that you forgive someone on the surface, but then you really hold them accountable to what they've done through your actions from that point forward. Right, or you, yeah, so you bury it. So you say, oh yeah, it's okay. I know you're sorry. But then secretly you hold on to that thing and it becomes a burning ember in your heart and it destroys your relationships. Yeah, Kurt. Yeah, Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I forgive you, but now I expect you to change your act. <laughs> and if you don't, then I'm I'm taking it right back, you know? Sure, yeah. Yeah. So it's there's a definition issue. We don't really understand what forgiveness is. I mean, think about some of these things. I mean, you've already mentioned some of them. Um, but you only forgive when there isn't a pattern of sin. Or you, you forgive only when it's done unintentionally, but if someone meant to do it, then you don't do it. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we judge others by their actions, but we judge us by our intentions. And so we give ourselves a whole lot more leniency than we give the other. We're going to talk about that. Um, or, I mean, one of the biggest ones in our culture is you can't really forgive someone unless you feel like forgiving them. You know? Like, I can't really forgive someone because I don't, I don't, I still feel angry towards them, so that, therefore I cannot forgive. Now, I want you to compare those statements that we've all made so far to Mark 11.25 and what Jesus says about forgiveness. Because he says, and when you stand praying, that means when you're at the synagogue, when you're at the temple, when you're gathered with your family, when, with your community of faith, and you are standing there praying... If you hold anything against who? Anyone. Forgive them. So that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Right? Wait, hold. Like right then and there? Like as I'm standing praying in the moment, just like that. Forgive them. How do you do that? Because Jesus doesn't give any qualifications, there's no room for excuses, there's no room for restrictions on who or what deserves your forgiveness. He just says, do it. Right there then, in the moment, forgive them. Anything against anyone. If you're holding anything, forgive them immediately. Now, that sounds great, right? I mean, that sounds... You expect Jesus to say something like that. So let's make this as uncomfortable as we can. (laughs) All right? Let's turn up the, the heat a little bit. I want you to think about the worst thing someone has ever done to you. Go ahead. Got it? This is like a Stay Puft Marshmallow Man moment, you know. Choose the form of your destruction. That's a Ghostbusters reference, by the way. 
All right, so you're thinking about that. You've got the picture of the person in your mind. Now let's read Matthew 6, 14 to 15, because Jesus turns the heat up even more. He says, now that you're thinking about this, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Ouch. Are we uncomfortable yet? We're getting there. How can Jesus say something so insensitive? So wrong, so harsh, so painful? I mean, doesn't he... I'm thinking about this really painful incident in my life or season in my life or maybe it's continued for years or decades. Doesn't he understand what I've been through? Yes. Yes, he does. In fact, he's the omnipresent creator and sustainer of the universe. He, he understands, he sees what you've gone through. Not only that, but he's lived in your shoes and so he knows what it's like to suffer. So he's been on both sides of the equation that you're enduring right now and so he knows. So you might say, okay, well then how in the world can he say something like that? How did, can he expect that I would just let someone off the hook like that? I, and here's the thing, it almost sounds like Jesus is saying like, If you don't do this, you won't be this, which seems totally backwards to the gospel. So you're saying, if I don't forgive, then I won't be forgiven. I thought the gospel was all about what God does for us. I thought it was all about his forgiveness to us, regardless of what we do. We just receive it by faith and we're forgiven. Yeah, that's right. But what he's saying is, if you can't forgive people when they sin against you, then you really don't understand the forgiveness that you've received, that God has extended to you as a sinner against him. Because if you can't forgive, it's actually a sign that you don't understand why he came in the very first place and how bad our condition was. How enormously in need we were of saving and forgiveness ourselves. And so forgiveness is like a fruit. It appears on our tree. Remember last week we talked about the vine and the branches? And that if we're dependent on him, we receive life from the vine and therefore our lives will demonstrate certain things. Well, think about it this way. If if you have two trees, they're both apple trees, and one has fruit and one doesn't, one is healthy and one's not, the, the apples on the tree don't make the tree healthy. It's not like, okay, if I produce forgiveness, then I'll be healthy. No, it doesn't work that way. It's fruit, not roots. But it shows that you're healthy. Apples on an apple tree show that it's connected to the right root source. And in the same way, forgiveness shows that we're in the vine. In fact, the reality is, and this is why we're starting here, God's people should be the most forgiving people on the planet the most offense-overlooking folks. to I mean, people should be like, if you want to be around a group of people that don't judge you by your sins but forgive you over and over and over and over again and give you chance after chance after chance to, to see God change your life, go and be around them. And that's why I think we don't have the reputation that we should. Because we've been forgiven an infinite debt. And every moment of our lives is a gift of complete grace from God. And so the question is, are we living out of that reality? Are we living differently because of the vine that we're connected to? And the truth is, if we don't, it is a matter of life and death. Remember what Jesus said, if you're not connected to the vine, what happens to you? You get thrown away. You either get connected to him and you receive forgiveness, which means you give forgiveness, or the alternative is to be thrown, to be cast out. And so here's the reality. All of us are going to need this at some point because all of us either have experienced things that we need to forgive or in a season where we're living in unforgiveness and we will need to do the business of 
come, overcoming that, or some day down the road you will be harmed in a way that you will need to forgive forgiveness. You, you can't escape this one. It's not like, oh, forgiveness, I get to get off the hook on this week. No, it's for all of us. And so we have to know what it looks like and how to do it. How do you forgive someone in light of the gospel? One of the best resources on this subject is a man by the name of Miroslav Volf, who is a Croatian Christian theologian. And he writes a number of things on the topic of forgiveness, but he is a man who lived through um, the Balkans and all the brokenness and and um, corruption and, and war and, and various things. And so he writes from a front row seat what it means to forgive someone else. And he wrote a book called Free of Charge, Giving and Forgiving in a Culture Stripped of Grace. I actually have that book. It's got a picture of a nice tree on it, so chances are I'm going to endorse it. <laughs> but uh, if you want to take a look at it, come see me afterwards and, and you can have it this week. Um, but there, there, there's some steps. There's some things that he says are necessary if we break forgiveness down into its various parts that help us to understand what forgiveness is and how to live it out. And here's what he says. In order to experience forgiveness, there are two things that we must do about the offense itself and two things that we must do about the offender who did the offense. Two things we have to do about the offense, two things about the offender. And so these are the four things. First is that we count the debt. We count it. Secondly, we identify with the debtor. Third, we cancel the debt. And fourth, we love the debtor. All right, so these, these are the four things I want to move through them somewhat briefly, okay? The first is that we count the debt. The, the way that he puts it is that we name and condemn the wrongdoing. Because whenever someone has wronged you, it's as if they've opened up a credit account with your life. They've taken out a loan um, to your life and now you and they feel like there is something standing between you because they've, in some cases, taken out a hefty withdrawal and, and there is a debt there. And now that, that may or may not be monetarily, but we feel the burden of that withdrawal that they make. Now here's, here's where we have to count the debt because there are two kinds of people typically in the world, when it comes to those that have been offended. There are those that make bigger offenses out of little things, and there are those that make little offenses out of big things. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's important for you to know which one you are. Because there are some kind of people where every little offense that comes along their way, they turn it into a massive debt, right? You cut someone off at a traffic light and you are now their enemy for all eternity and they are burning holes in your bumper with their eyes because of this small debt that you have now created with them. And they will remember that debt forever and ever. I can't believe that one day when I was cut off by that person. I just, oh, I want to kill him. You've made a small thing into a large debt and you hold that person to that debt. Now, there are others, though, that when sinned against, they make pretty large debts into smaller ones. Do you know how we do that? By excusing it. By going, oh, well, it wasn't really that big of a thing. Or that's just kind of how they are. They, They always speak to me that way. And we make excuses and we minimize and we rationalize large debts into small ones, we pretend that a $100,000 debt is really pocket change. Now, there's a huge danger if we do that. What do you think the danger is? Yeah. We forgive the pocket change only, but here's the thing. The debt doesn't go away. And so you continue to be in relationship with this person who has racked up huge charges of credit on your account and you think, ah, it's not that big a deal until one day you look at them and you realize the list of debt that they've occurred and you go ballistic. Why? Because you haven't, you haven't counted the cost. You haven't racked up 
the amount. You haven't been realistic about the, the kinds of debt that people incur against you. You think that you've dealt with it, but you really haven't. Until that one day when you go nuts. See, we need to condemn the wrongdoing. We need to count it. But we need to do so without condemning the person who committed it. And, and I think we, we're horrible at this. We don't do this well. Because we turn big debts into little ones. Now, part of what Miroslav says is that when we count that debt, we need to be able to, to name that wrongdoing and condemn it for what it is. And so please don't hear forgiveness as being not standing up for justice. You can be a forgiving person who is full of the love of Jesus and still name and condemn things that are wrong in this world without condemning the person who does them. Think of Jesus who who goes into the temple when the money changers are exchanging these things and making a profit off of the temple worship. What does Jesus do? He doesn't just go, ah, it's all right. No, he's ticked off. And he flips those, those things over and he whips them out of the temple. He stands up for what's right. And family, we can do the same thing. I hope we will do the same thing. So we need to count the debt. Second, though, we have to identify with the debtor. We have to identify something about the person. And this is hard work. But this is eternal work that we have to do where we're reminding ourselves of how much we actually have in common with the person who's offended you. Ouch. That's tough, right? It's to put yourself in their place. It's to sympathize with their condition. Um, because here's the reality all of us are we live in a broken world and we are products of that brokenness and so yes we are culpable for our actions before God and before other people but so much of what we do is an outcome of the brokenness that we ourselves have experienced and if you don't identify with the person you end up turning them into their actions alone rather than seeing them as a human being. The reason I say this is hard work is because this is the last thing that you want to do when you've been offended, right? The very last thing that your heart... Your heart doesn't want to emphasize with them. It it wants to, to emphasize the differences between you and the other person. But you must, you must, if you're going to get to a place of forgiveness, identify with them as much as you can to to call out and name the ways that you are similar to the person who may have perpetrated things against you. Because here's the best way that I know of to stay angry at someone, to stay bitter at someone, is to turn someone into a cartoon of their own making. It is to take some, a multifaceted human being who is both broken and beautiful as an image bearer of God and turn them into a funhouse mirror where all you see are their flaws. Right? I mean, if we go into a funhouse and look at a thing and, and I look at a certain mirror, it's going to make me look like I'm 100 miles wide and that I'm three feet tall. Now, there's there's... There's a vein of truth in that, right? Because I'm a pretty stocky guy, and I'm not tall. I know this about myself. But what a funhouse mirror does is it takes existing attributes and it emphasizes them to the distortion of everything else that I am. And isn't that exactly what you do when you're offended? Isn't that precisely what you do when, you, when someone has wronged you? You turn them into their action and you see them only through the lens of what they've done to you. And so when if somebody lies to you, you think, that lying liar, all they do is lie. I can't believe how much they lie. All the, that's, their whole life is just lying. It's just one big lie. Yeah, have you ever lied? Well, yeah, but it's complicated. 
There were circumstances and there, you know, so it's what we were talking about before. You see the actions of others and you see the intention of your heart. You treat yourself like a multifaceted image bearer of God and you treat others as though they are only can be seen through that one lens. And so we have to identify with the person that has created the debt. It's to say, I'm not so different from this person. And they're not so different from me. Miroslav Volf puts it this way. He says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude my enemy from the community of humans. That's the first part, right? That's the part we've been talking about. And here's the second part. I exclude myself from the community of sinners. I forget how much in need of grace I am. See, because the only way that you can hold a grudge against someone and be bitter and unforgive them, uh, be, live in unforgiveness of them, is if, is, is if you continue to feel superior to them. And you tell yourself that you are justified and they are not, that you are good and they are broken. And what are you doing? You're excluding yourself from the community of sinners. And so we need, we need this... If we're going to make any headway in forgiveness, we have to understand that. So I'd just call you to, as you were thinking through the offense that you were thinking through before, ask yourself the question, in what ways do I still feel superior to the person I'm having trouble forgiving? Do I feel like I'm smarter than them? Like I'm holier than them? Like, like, like I'm better than them in some way? What is it? And get rid of it. Because in God's eyes, we're the same. Now, once you do that work, here's the next part. We have to cancel the debt. We cancel the debt. Now, you remember I said, when someone has sinned against you, a debt is incurred. To truly forgive them means this, that instead of exacting payment for the debt, you choose to cancel it instead. That's the essence of forgiveness is that you do not hold that debt against that person expecting them to pay, but instead you say, I will pay. I will pay. And you absorb the debt. This is the essence of what it means to forgive. Now here's the thing. When you cancel a debt, now let's say I borrow my friend Kevin's car. And uh, I go out gallivanting in his car. Yes, I use that word. I don't use it often. But I use it when it's appropriate, and it was just then. <laughs> and in the course of my day, I, I completely wreck his car. I total it. And it's just, it's a total loss. Now, I find out after the fact that my friend Kevin, he doesn't have insurance on the car. He has insurance for other people because he's a responsible human being, but he, he doesn't have insurance to replace the car. <laughs> Now I bring the car back to him in the condition that I've now created and we are both looking at the car and here's the reality of the situation. One of us is going to need to replace the car. One of us has to pay. Now either me as the perpetrator at that point can say, I will make up for your loss. I will do the things that need to be done in order to give you back what I stole from you. Or, my friend can say, I let you go. I will pay. One way or another, the cost of the car didn't vanish, but it needs to be paid for. And someone will. And that's the same with every loss. It doesn't matter if it's monetary or emotional or relational or whatever the case might be. Either the person who created the loss pays for it or the person who experienced the loss pays for it. It's one or the other. And whether it's monetary or not, is it true that the debt that you feel is very real? That's why, that's why whenever God talks about forgiveness, he always uses monetary terms. It's because we understand that it is a debt and that somebody does need to pay for it. And sometimes the debt that we incur in relationships with other people, especially if those people are close to us, they're so much more significant and they feel so much more real than money, doesn't it? And what happens is you feel that the other person owes you. 
And so what are you going to do? You have only two options. The first option is that you make them pay. Now, how would we do that? Especially if someone is living in unforgiveness. You know, they don't respond the way that I did to my friend and said, I'll pay for it. Let's say I walk away and I leave him with the car sitting in his driveway and I never return his phone calls. And I never acknowledge that I've ever done anything wrong. How can Kevin then expect an exact payment from me even if it's not monetary? I mean, one option is he could sue me. There's one way. But he could do a whole host of other things, couldn't he? He could try to hurt me. Right? He could wish ill of me. He could root for my downfall. He could gossip about me and go, that Jay is just so irresponsible. He could warn other people about me not to let me borrow their car because secretly he's angry at me. He could be cold to me. He could withdraw his friendship. He could belittle me. He could rejoice when bad things happen. In other words, and this is the way that we do this, this is the way that we try to extract payment from people that have incurred a debt against us. We root for their suffering because their suffering equals payment. Isn't that true? We hope for other people's suffering because if they suffer, we feel, yes, I'm getting my back what's due to me. Here's the problem. As you're wishing that poison on others, as you're hoping for their downfall because you want payment out of them, guess what's happening at the same time? You're drinking the poison too. Every time. You're killing yourself when you do that to other people. And it's harming you. It's harming your relationship with God. It's harming your relationship with family. It's harming your relationship with others. Why? Because you're poisoning yourself little by little, day by day. You, you're, you're wasting away when you're bitter against someone else because you, as you're hoping that they pay, so you pay too. So what's the other option? The other option is that you pay. That after you've counted the debt and you've identified with the debtor, essentially you say, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I am putting this debt to rest forever. I am crediting their account as though it were full. I'm, I'm, I'm stamping a big stamp across the front of it that says it is finished and I will no longer look for payment. You cancel the debt Now, here's the thing. When a debt has been paid, you can't go around continuing to seek additional payment for the same debt. Right? When my student loans were canceled, I mean, in my case, because I paid them off, but (laughs) when I got a letter in the mail that said, your payments are paid in full, I didn't get another letter the very next month going, oh yeah, by the way, but we need $100 more. Which means that as you, if, as you choose to cancel the debt that other people incur against you, you refuse to hold the grudge against them. You refuse to, to avoid them out of anger. You, have, you refuse to secretly wish bad circumstances on them. You refuse to rejoice when bad things happen. You refuse to gossip about them. You say, I will not do that because I need no more payment. And here's the thing, just as... As you go down the road of making them pay that you end up drinking the poison yourself, when you refuse and you say, I will pay instead, what's it, what it does is it cuts off the source of poison to your heart. It cuts it off completely. And you get released from the poison that's been poisoning you. And little by little, as you grant forgiveness, you, here's what happens. You start to feel forgiveness towards that person. Which is totally opposite to the way that we all think, right? All of us think, I can't forgive until I feel like I'm forgiving. This is my children, okay? Someone does something to something else and they go, well, I don't, I'll say I'm sorry, but I'm still angry at them. And they hold on to it. And what they're doing is they, they, they're 
they're feeling like they can't truly let their their brother off the hook because they don't feel it first. Here's what the gospel says. Forgiveness is always granted before it's felt. Every time, family. Every time. Because if you wait until you feel it, you'll never grant it. But as soon as you grant it, you feel it. And the more that you grant it, you feel it. Until increasingly over time, you'll realize in your heart that you wish no ill will against the person anymore. That you can actually root for their good. You might say, well, won't it hurt to do that? Doesn't it hurt to, to choose to pay the payment rather than seek the payment? Oh, yeah, it does. Big time. That's what forgiveness is. You're choosing to, to take on the suffering rather than to make the other suffer. But the result of you choosing that path is that your heart will soften. You'll be free of the poison. Which then allows you to do the last thing, which is to love the debtor, to love the offender. In other words, once you identify what's been done to you, once you identify with the person who's done it, once you've canceled the debt that's held against them, then and only then are you freed up to do what's loving, the loving thing to do towards the other person. Now, I'm not talking about feelings primarily. I'm talking about actions because love is primarily a choice. And if we're flipping that, again, we're getting it backwards. But you choose to love them. Now, now, don't mishear me because there are people that fall into different categories according to the debt that's been incurred to you, okay? Can't treat everybody the same or love everyone the same way. Love, love does what's appropriate for the person, in their particular circumstances. And so love may look different to the different people that may have incurred debt against you. Here's here's one example of that. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any one of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. What is Paul talking about there? Well, that word bear means to tolerate. It means to put up with something. In other words, there are certain debts that don't need to be brought before the debtor. Just because someone is annoying to you continually doesn't mean that you have to hold that against them and bring that to them and go, you know, the loving thing to do is to tell you how annoying you are to be. No, there are times when you should just bear it. That you keep that between you and your Heavenly Father and you say, help me to bear and to tolerate and to put up with this person because you've called me to love them, not just to point out everything that's wrong with them. There are times and people where that is appropriate as brothers and sisters in Christ. But there are other times, because Paul says in Galatians 6.1, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, If they're caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Now what's Paul talking about here? To be caught in a sin is either to have a sin revealed that is sizable in magnitude where it needs to be dealt with, or there's a pattern of sin in that person's heart, in that person's life, that is both destroying them and destroying other people. In which case, it would be unloving not to show the person gently in love what they're doing and how their hearts are astray. It would be the unloving thing to do to bear with it. Because they need to be shown their error. Now, they, they may choose to receive that word or reject it. That is not on you. What is on you is to show that person as an act of love what they're doing and to make what they're doing not easy to continue because it is doing damage to you, to others, and to themselves and ultimately to the reputation of God. And so there are sometimes when people need to be confronted. Now that confrontation may come in the form of having to set up boundaries with someone. That may be the loving thing to do. If you have ever had a parent who's um, overly burdensome, who's highly critical, who, who just 
kind of nagging and, and pushing and, and kind of abusive in their language. It, it is a healthy boundary and a loving thing to do to them to say, I will not allow you to do that any longer. I, I will continue to reach out to you in love, but the moment that you begin to go down this trail of anger or resentment or harshness or criticalism towards me or towards my family, I am ending it there. That is my boundary because that's a loving thing to do to a family member that is caught in that type of sin. Is it not? There are times when legal action is the loving thing to do. If a wife is being beaten by her husband she should both forgive him and have him thrown in jail. That is the loving thing to do for that individual. Because you can both forgive someone and, and arrest them from their dangerous and sinful activity. Now here's the difference, because you think, well, I don't understand, that seems like such a contradiction. See, Here's the thing, if you don't go through the process that I've already outlined, if you don't count the cost and identify with the person and cancel the debt, then when you take action, even if you say that it's a loving thing to do, you're actually not out for their good, you're out for your own good. You're not out to relieve them of payment, you're out to get payment. And so the, it's funny because the actions can look very similar, don't they? I mean, if a wife has her husband arrested because he's abusive to her, she can be doing it for two very different motivating reasons. One is of God and the other one is not. Because if we're not doing it as a restorative action to, to love the other person, then we're not doing it out of a sense of justice. We're doing it out of a sense of revenge. We're trying to get vengeance, not justice. And here's the thing. Everybody knows the difference between the two, don't they? You know the difference if someone's doing something out of a, out of a, a, a heart of love towards you, that even if you don't like what it is that they're doing to you, you can understand that they're doing it because of the right reasons. But if you don't do it because of the right reasons, then you're unqualified to do it in the first place because you're doing it to get payment, not to... Extend love. Does that make sense? All right, so those are the steps. Count the debt, identify the debtor, cancel the debt, love the debtor. Miroslav's a, he's a smart guy, isn't he? How easy. I mean, just go and do it, right? <laughs> Good luck. I mean, he's smart enough to know these things actually work. And if you practice them this week, you probably see a difference. Yeah, but it's not that easy, right? Because, I mean, even if you follow these to a T, it's still hard, if not impossible, to forgive. And so what does that leave us with? Well, we have to know, we don't just have to know who gave us the steps, so Miroslav is a very smart man and, and he knows what he's talking about, but he, he's a plagiarizer. Did you know that? Why do I say that? Because he ripped every step off the gospel. <laughs> every step that he gave is taken right from the pages of Scripture, right from the life of Jesus Christ. And so you can't do these things without being empowered by the one who gave them originally. You can't enact these things without understanding the gospel. This goes back to the lens and seeing the world through it. Because the only way this will happen is if you understand that God followed these steps to bring forgiveness to you. That's the only way. Because the truth is, he counted the cost that we incurred against him. Did he not? He knew exactly how much we we were astray and exactly how much it cost. He didn't just say, oh, well, let's let bygones be bygones. No, he said in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You want to know how much we had to pay? A thousand lifetimes of spiritual death that we could never afford. That's how much the debt was. More than you could ever live, more than the good deeds that you could ever do. Forget about all that. The debt was far too high and God knew it. 
He didn't just go, oh, well, if you're just a good person and you go to church from now until the end of your life, I'll kind of overlook the rest. No! It cost his own son. That's how high it was. But he didn't just count the dead. He identified with the debtor. He didn't just say from heaven, okay, I know how much it is. I will pay it out. Because he didn't just identify with us. He became us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He became the perpetrator. He became the murderer to let murderers become like him. He, He became the liar so that liars like us could become righteous in his sight. He identified with us. And then he canceled the debt against us by paying it for himself. Colossians 2 13 to 14 says, He forgave us all of our sins, doing what? Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. There is forgiveness. Which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. He canceled your debt. The debt you can never pay. And oh, by the way, Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. He didn't wait for an apology. He just did it. And then he continues to love us by reconciling us to himself and putting his spirit inside of us and making us new. And the truth of the matter is you can't receive this forgiveness without having it change the way that you extend it to others because it'll happen every time. I want to end with this story. It's, a, it's just a great story. There's a woman by the name of Corey Tenboom. Have you ever heard that name before? She's written a number of incredible books, and she was a author and speaker and Bible teacher. She's also a Dutch woman who lived in the Netherlands during World War II. And she and her sister, Betsy, um, hid Jews during the time of the Nazis, but they were caught in the act, and they were put into a concentration camp, and Corey's sister, Betsy, died in that camp. And years later, Corey became uh, this kind of traveling Bible teacher, and she would go around to different churches and give her testimony. And she says this, One day at a church service in Munich where I was speaking, I saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the so-called shower door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. With the other guards, he had often run his hand over naked bodies as they went by and responded callously to requests for help. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had ever seen after the war. And suddenly it was all there again. The heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face, And when he came up to me as the church was emptying, he said, how grateful I am for your message today. To think that as you say, he has washed away my sins. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, but my hand stayed at my side. Angry, vengeful feelings boiled through me. I tried to smile and struggled to raise my hand. I could not. So I silently prayed, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and to my hand, a current seemed to pass. While into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Now why was she able to do that? Well, I think the first answer is that she, this isn't the first time that she had done the work of forgiving. And so she's seeing the evidence of that heart process manifest itself in the moment when she needed it most. But don't, don't discount the fact also that in the moment that she needed it, she received more riches from Jesus than any debt that was ever occurred against her. That Jesus' forgiveness and his love flooded her bank account so that she was able to draw not just from her own resources, but his. 
Her resources were tapped out in that moment. And so she called on the resources of another who was faithful and just to forgive not just her sins, but the one who had sinned against her. It's on the strength of her testimony, not on mine, and on the words of Jesus himself that I say, it doesn't matter what's been done to you. The power of the gospel has enough riches to cancel any debt. Will we believe it? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that there are riches to spare in the kingdom of God. That with your help and by your power, we have more than we could ever know to forgive things that are unforgivable and people that should not be forgiven even. God, help us to remember that we aren't so unlike the people that we are unforgiving of and that you extended your grace to us. Help us live from that grace and to be a beacon of your power and your love and your forgiveness to everyone this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.